Uh, my text this morning is Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 38. It's printed on the back cover of your bulletin for your convenience. Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second took her as wife, and he died childless. The third took her, and in like manner also the seventh also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and the sons of God, and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. As I said last week, during this week, the leaders of the nation are trying to catch Jesus in his words. This is the last few days before he is delivered to be crucified. From their perspective, they're looking for something that will discredit him in front of the people so they can denounce him to Pilate, and they're looking for something to convince Pilate to execute him. So that's what's going on. Of course, as I said last week, from God's perspective, it's the Lamb of God being examined to determine if it is without blemish and without spot, so that we might be assured that he took upon himself the curse that lay upon us. There were many social and political groups in Jerusalem at the time. The ones that the scripture talks the most about are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't agree on much of anything. They were deadly enemies, except when it came to getting rid of Jesus. The Sadducees, which our passage is about, they were the wealthy patrons. They were the rich ruling class of the Jews. They made up most of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme council of the Jewish nation. Most of them were Sadducees. The high priests were always Sadducees. They believed on cooperating with the Romans. They were the ones that made millions of dollars on the exchanges in the temple. And so when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, he hit the Sadducees right in their pockets. So they had reasons for wanting Jesus gone. They were also what we would now call materialists. They only recognized the universe as a closed system, where everything in it could be explained by natural processes. And therefore, death was the end. There was no life after death. There were no angels, there was no spiritual realm, no punishment or reward after death, and no resurrection. They viewed it all as absurd from a scientific perspective, not at all practical, and therefore foolish. It was also convenient, for it allowed them to exploit and oppress and live in luxury without fear of punishment or hope of reward. To a Sadducee, 
The only life was this one. The only existence was a physical one. The only goal was to live your best life now. And every time I think about the Sadducees, I think about this old pastor that taught us what Sadducees were when we were children, and he always closed with, and so they were sad, you see. You can put that on my review. These kinds of people have been around for thousands of years. 300 years ago, the commentator Matthew Henry wrote that they call themselves free thinkers in his day. They still do today. There's a sign going down to Sacramento that's a freeway cleanup by atheists and other free thinkers. There's a kind of arrogance in that statement. They say, when they say we are free thinkers, that unlike you lot, who are a bunch of sheep just following the opinions of others, we are free thinkers who follow the opinions of others. But they keep that second part kind of quiet. They would claim that there was a God, like the deists of old, the Sadducees. They also claim that this God has nothing relevant to say, doesn't concern himself with the affairs of the world, and that there is no supernatural realm. In theory, the Sadducees were not atheists, but practically they were. They were what David describes in Psalm 14 when he says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They would say with their lips that there is a God, but in their heart they lived as if there was none. In my short experience, I have found two kinds of people who call themselves atheists. One kind has been hurt and wounded so badly by the church in the name of God that they can't believe in that kind of a God, which is the only God they have ever heard. All they have heard is that God hates them, he can't wait to throw them into hell, that he's an angry, vengeful God, and his representatives on earth are also angry, vengeful people. To these, I say, I don't believe in that God either. But I would invite you to seek the God who is, who seeks after you like a woman looking for a lost coin and a shepherd looking for a lost sheep. There is hope. The other kind of atheist is the kind like the Sadducees were, naturally believing themselves to be superior to other lesser beings, who teach that those who believe in God are weak losers, that believing in God is just a crutch for the masses, and anyone who believes in resurrection and miracles is foolish, laughable, ignorant, and deserves to be put in their place and mocked. This is the committee that confronted Jesus. They believed that anyone who taught resurrection was stupid and laughable and deserved to be ridiculed publicly. You can tell that by the question they ask. It's a foolish question on the face of it. You may have heard your teacher say there's no such thing as a bad question. There is indeed a such thing as a bad question, and that's this one here. So they approach Jesus with a question that they believe will show to everybody in the temple just how stupid Jesus is and how stupid people like him are so that they can laugh and mock him as a moron who takes the Bible literally. They believe that they can do this using the law of Moses. So I'd like to take a couple of minutes to look at this law of Moses so we can understand what the question is. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. If brothers dwell together, Moses says, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. 
And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. There are several reasons for a law like this. Well, it had to do with the economy, the land of Israel, compassion to the widow, caring for uh, the people of God. As you know, the land was divided up between all the families, and the family kept that inheritance generation after generation after generation. We see David's inheritance, for instance, was the land around Bethlehem. And so when Jesus is born, they have to go to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. That land of Canaan, we read in the scripture, represented the new heavens and the new earth, the land built by God. It was a permanent dwelling place for the people of God. If a man had no sons, after his death, the land would go to someone else, and his name would be lost in the genealogies of Israel. Having your name in the genealogy of Israel was everything. The worst curse that could come upon a man would be cut off without an heir to carry on his name. For in God's economy, it would show that he had no place in the future of the nation and symbolically meant that he had no inheritance with the people of God. And therefore, God speaks about a curse coming on the wicked by saying, I will cut them off. Criminals were to be taken outside the camp and cut off. From a very practical point of view, if a widow had no sons who would inherit the land, then she would be destitute. She would have no one to care for her and have no place in the community. If she married a stranger or another tribe, then her future sons would inherit the land of the second husband, not the land of the first husband. And so the first husband would be cut off without an heir. So if a man died without an heir in order to protect the widow and the man's name, the younger brother would take the widow as a wife, The firstborn would inherit the name of the dead man. Keep the land, keep the name, preserve the lineage, take care of the widow. This is complicated. That's the background of this test. You know enough now to understand what Jesus' answer is. The question they ask him is, here's a woman who's buried six husbands. So who will be married to her in the resurrection? This goes back to the debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees for centuries. The Pharisees taught that God's law was the unbreakable, eternal expression of God's very nature. All of it. Even if a lot of it didn't make a whole lot of sense to them, they still did it. If the law said to bind the words before your eyes, they would take the law, they'd tie it up in a little bundle, they'd hang it in front of their face because that's what the law said. Their view of the law was that God was a harsh taskmaster demanding correct service or he would punish them. That God would count how many steps you take on the Sabbath day. That he would uh, tell you to bind the stuff, the, the law in your garments and hang it in front of your eyes and put it on your doorsteps. And so that's what they did. They had 612 rules. Whether any of them made sense or not, they followed them because God would punish them if they broke one. So they knew exactly how much meant an anise and coming to tithe. And they counted out each grain. The Sadducees thought it was all ridiculous. Just like they thought that this law was ridiculous and contrary to proper reason. 
They think that they have him. To them, he could either say that the law of Moses was wrong, or he could say that belief in the resurrection was wrong. Either way, they discredit him before the people. It's like that question, can God make a rock too big for him to lift? They think they've won by positing a ridiculous question. But Jesus answers them and stops their mouth. And in this answer, he actually lifts our eyes up to something higher than the affairs of this world. There are many today who view the law of Moses the same way that the Pharisees did. Jesus said they search the scripture because in them they think they find eternal life, but they testify of Jesus. And there are many that do the same thing. You have a problem in your marriage, well, look at this scripture, apply it, and everything will be fixed. You got a problem with your kids, look at this scripture, apply it, it'll be fixed. You got a problem with your business, look at this scripture, apply it, it'll be fixed. And so they have a whole list of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules because they believe that the Mosaic law is God's perfect expression of how society ought to operate, and thus they miss the point. And so these people spend an endless amount of time examining slavery laws, marriage laws, sexuality laws, blasphemy laws, and so on. When I was a child, I was raised in this environment. It was called theonomy. It goes by various names. That Moses' law was the perfect expression of God's will for all culture and society, and it should be the law of every nation. The way that it was framed is that if you disagree with it, then you're disagreeing with God himself. And the only alternative to theonomy is autonomy. Theonomy means God's law. Autonomy means self-law. Well, of course, we don't want to be a law unto ourself. So in other words, if you don't believe that Sabbath breakers ought to be taken outside the city and stoned, then you don't believe in the authority of God. This is a similar view that the Pharisees had, a similar view that the Sadducees mocked. Jesus didn't side with either one. The marriage laws, Jesus says, were temporary. They're for the sons of this age. There will come a time when they will pass away, when they've served their purpose. There's a deeper way of looking at God's law given to Moses. The way of wisdom, where we seek to discern God's will and find our Redeemer by understanding his revelation to his people living in a very different age and a very different culture with very, very different surroundings. Today you will not find, I hope, very many people advocating for forcing brothers to marry their dead brother's widow. So what changed? What changed was the plan of redemption changed. It was revealed. It didn't change. It was revealed more fully. It's interesting to note that all of the genealogies in Scripture end with Jesus. There's only two in the New Testament. One in Matthew that traces him from Abraham to Jesus and one in Luke which traces from Adam to Jesus. But after Jesus, there are no genealogies. How many of you have been bogged down reading the Old Testament when you come to chapter after chapter after chapter of genealogies? But you get to the New Testament. It starts with one and it ends with Jesus. And that's the last one. 
The plan of redemption is revealed. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And no matter how hard Israel tried, they still bred sinners. But in Jesus, he is the true son. He is the true firstborn. He's the true Israel. He's the lamb of God. He's the inheritance. He's the heir. In him, we are complete. The barren woman has given birth, to use Isaiah's figure. The solitary has been placed in a family, to use the figure from the Psalms. This new era is not a family of flesh and blood, because as Jesus told Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. As Jesus told the crowds, who are my mother and my father and my, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Those that do the will of God. The new family is that which is born of the Spirit, engrafted into Christ, whether we are married or single, rich or poor, whether we have many children or are childless. The kingdom of God is the family of those who are engrafted into Christ. We are a new family, born of the Spirit, with Christ our brother as our head. This will all be further revealed as Revelation progresses in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't step into their trap by saying that law has already been fulfilled. That time will come. But he does answer their question. That's for the sons of this age. If there was no resurrection, then there's no point in salvation at all. Christianity is worse than false. It's pointless. And Christ died in vain. Luke doesn't record this statement, but Matthew records at this event that Jesus said, you are wrong, you don't know the power of scripture, or you don't know the scripture or the power of God. You know, that sums up most theological errors. You don't know the scripture or the power of God. God couldn't have created the world in six days. There couldn't have been a flood. Virgin births are impossible. Miracles don't happen. Resurrections don't happen. You're wrong because you don't know the scripture or the power of God. They thought they had him over a barrel with this hypothetical question. But this is only a valid question if the law of Moses is still in force in the new heavens and the new earth. But when death has been taken away, do we still need to protect the widows? When death is taken away, do we still need to have babies? When we're face to face with Jesus, do we still need the types and the shadows? When death is taken away and there is no more sin and no more curse, will we still need judges and executioners and family courts and building codes when death is no more and we are made perfect in love? Just as when Christ came and established a new era and poured out his spirit on all flesh, we don't need the laws on what to do with the virgin girls when you conquer a city. Because now the cities are conquered by the proclamation of the gospel, the sword coming from the mouth of Christ. So not only are the laws of marriage as Moses gave them done away with, But also, when we are made perfect in love, death has passed away and all things have become new. And that age is bursting forth on this one. 
Those that have happy marriages sometimes view this sadly. You mean I won't be married to my sweetie in heaven? If you have that kind of a marriage, well, thank God for it. That isn't the point of Jesus' passage here. The love and unity and fellowship that you now enjoy in marriage, that's certainly not going away. That's being perfected in a way we can't even imagine. That love and fellowship and unity that you have in your marriage is just a picture of the grand reality that we will have when we see Jesus face to face. It's like a seed that falls into the ground and grows into something magnificent. Everything on earth will pale in comparison. And so, yes, you will experience the love and joy and fellowship you have now on a far grander scale with the loved ones who have died in Christ. But Moses' liverite laws on brothers marrying widows is going to pass away. That's Jesus' point. The fact is, it's prophetic, for it's already passed away. Marriage, as it was practiced before Christ, has given way to something far more glorious. Ephesians 5 on husbands and wives and their relationship as one flesh was something unknown to marriages before Christ. You don't see any of the patriarch's marriage that is like that glimpsed at prophesied about seen from afar like the song of songs but it's something far more glorious in Christ so do we need the laws on how to manage polygamous marriages I hope not it means you've missed the point of the gospel that's another sermon The economy of the old passes away with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It's a new era. The law is written on the heart instead of on tables of stone. Ideally, husbands and wives should never stray because they love each other and can't even imagine possibly committing adultery. But because we still live in a sinful world, we still have to have laws against adultery. First Corinthians says, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We can't imagine a world without the curse. We can only get glimpses of it. Revelation reveals bits and pieces of it using all this imagery to bring in all this information from the old covenant of what it means to have life with God and to live forever. Jesus says we will all be sons of God like the angels in heaven. He doesn't mean that we will be without bodies. He means we will be without the curse. We will be in glorified bodies. We can't imagine the beauty of a body that is no longer subject to death. Can you imagine no aching joints, no disease, no brain damage, no syndromes, no torn ligaments, no spasms, no cancers, no dying cells? We're so immersed in the curse, we can't even imagine it. We can't imagine romping with all of God's creatures, exploring his creation, and saying with him in the everlasting Sabbath, Behold, it is very good. But that's the picture of our eternal rest given to us in Scripture. 
the curse on this earth is why we need marriage laws, the protections of the seventh commandment, the protections of the commandments against theft and murder. It's why we need law enforcement. It's why we have to have laws written on stone, policemen patrolling the streets. But when the law is on the heart and death is no more, and we are as the angels in heaven, that's something we can't fathom. We hold to it by faith. He says, those who have counted worthy to attain that age. The scripture teaches there's only one worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. He gives that worthiness to us as a free gift if we just accept it. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We just receive it. We long for that day. We wait for that day. We believe in that day. Because Christ has overcome death. So there will be no more curse. This is what it means to understand the scripture and the power of God. You don't need to explain it because how do you explain the power of God? Where the scripture is silent, hold to God's power. For he does have the power to put these bodies together. Even after death. Even after centuries in the tomb. Even after we dissolve into dust. Even if we've been cremated when we die. He has the power to gather his people together. Even those who have been burnt to ashes throughout history. Who have been buried at sea and devoured by fish. Does he not have power over the atoms and the dust? Is there a limit to his power? And Jesus goes on. 400 years after the death of Abraham, God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus calls it the burning bush passage. That would be the scroll that contained the passage with the burning bush. We would call it Exodus chapter 3. The appearance of God to Moses in the burning bush is the heart of the Jewish faith. If the Sadducees tried to argue with Jesus publicly about whether or not Moses actually saw a burning bush or not, they would have been summoned before the Sanhedrin because the people would have rioted. To deny the inerrancy of that passage to a Jew it was in effect to deny your Jewishness and everything about your faith. It was an untouchable passage. Whether you believed it in your heart or not, you never said that you didn't believe it. So notice how Jesus turns the challenge on them by quoting this passage in Scripture. Now they've got to deal with it. And look at what God says to Moses in that passage. He says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He didn't say, I used to be the God of Abraham. This was 400 years after Abraham was buried. He said, I am the God of Abraham. Matthew Henry writes, It's absurd that the living God and fountain of life should continue related to them as their God if there were no more of them than being laid in that cave indistinguishable from common dust. Wouldn't it be absurd if the living God says, I'm the God of that pile of dust, if that's all that was left of Abraham? Is it conceivable that God made a mistake and meant to say, I used to be the God of Abraham? He said, I am. 
And therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. Their bodies haven't been resurrected yet, but they are still alive. Otherwise, this passage is absurd. And that cannot be. If the Sadducees are correct and there is no resurrection, then the only explanation is that God is wrong or Moses wrote it down wrong. Either way, the implications are profound. If there is no resurrection, then God lied to Abraham. For Abraham never received while he was alive on this earth what God had promised him. If there is no resurrection, then God breaks promises. This is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. Your faith is vain. And we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, who he didn't raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If there is no resurrection, we're still in our sins. It's still hopeless. There's nothing trustworthy, nothing to believe in, no reason to keep on living. If the Sadducees are correct, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But we all know we're made for something far more than that. We were made for perfect love, perfect goodness, perfect beauty, perfect justice. No matter how much wealth you imagine, imagine, no matter how much wealth you have, there's still something missing. The whole of creation cries out for that which isn't finished yet. Every glimpse of goodness and every glimpse of beauty makes us long for more. Poets and musicians and artists capture that longing. Theologians talk about that longing. Augustine says we're made for God and our hearts are restless until we rest in him. The word that gives us hope and peace in all of that is God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he isn't the God of the dead, but the living. They're still alive. Jesus, with Jesus now waiting for their bodies to be raised And when your day comes, you'll be there as well. Where are their worries now? Where are their fears, their anxieties, their struggles, their loves, their hopes, everything? They're with Jesus. It's finished. God is still shepherding Jacob. God is still shepherding David. David wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. He never took his eyes off of David and brought him to his green pastures safely. And he will shepherd you, for he has promised Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, continue to shepherd us, guide us, and cause our eyes to look on you, the author and finisher of our faith, so that we can run this race without growing weary and without stumbling. In Jesus' name, amen.